Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today is Dr. Amanda Rogers, who is an expert on white supremacist movements, and uh, Tom Metzger in particular. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Amanda, just to begin with, uh, you've done quite a bit of research into Tom Metzger. Could you tell us who he was? Depending on your viewpoint, Tom Metzger was either a laughable buffoon who was a, a showman for the skinhead movement that he uses as quote-unquote shock troops, or he was kind of a Machiavellian evil genius and a diabolical force in particular behind the contemporary white supremacist movement's evolution in North America and somewhat in Europe as well. But... A very seminal figure, I would say, in contemporary white supremacist circles transnationally in a multitude of ways. That's my perspective. A lot of people write off Metzger because of his uh, public persona, particularly in the later years of his life, as it sort of came off, I think, in a very deliberately clownish manner, in a way that let him be dismissed very easily by the people that needed to do the dismissing. And what was his organization, the White Aryan Resistance? What, what, What sort of activities did they partake in? Oh, that's an excellent question. So Metzger actually started out, as many of the the fascist leadership figures do, going through the pipeline of the John Birch Society and falling out of favor with them mutually over basically the limits of what they would consider uh, taking on in their activist uh, activism against communist infiltration. Of course, Metzger was one of these figures, like many others. I think Butler was another that became disenchanted with the the lack of tackling the Jewish question on the part of the John Birch Society. He broke away and he he started several different small movements of his own that, that kept collapsing. One of which was actually I should step back one second because after he got out of the John Birch Society and became, as he put it, more racially aware, he joined up with David Duke's KKK and he became the leader of the California KKK for a while. Then he had a break with Duke, and he became disenchanted with electoral participation, at least as the primary modality of spreading his particular views. And he simultaneously sort of framed himself as a political action sort of committee in a group that he called, I think the initial name was the, the White American. It wasn't the, the White Aryan Resistance as of yet, but there was a, the same acronym. Uh, he had a small organization that he initially presented as being kind of a pack, I guess you could say, for quote-unquote white civil rights candidates. That failed miserably, and he became increasingly militant in his approach to the state and his approach to you know racist politics in general, 
And then you start to see an evolution in that acronym and it goes from white American resistance. There was another name before that and I just can't recall off the top of my head at the moment and to white Aryan resistance. This is an organization that Metzger founded deliberately uh, in a break from the model that the Klan had used prior to this, which is to say he wanted to step away from an organization that tracked data like membership names and basically had paper trails. This is one of his big issues with David Duke and the Klan at the time. And, you know, you can see evidence of this when you look at, say, affidavits that he was forced to give in cases brought concerning the, the Klan border patrol that he had going on in the mid-70s uh, in Southern California out here. But so he didn't want to disclose any data on members, and he wanted to operate in a more covert manner. So he essentially started war. This is the, the group that he's most notoriously associated with that brought in a lot of the, the skinheads in the mid-80s and um, all through the 90s, basically. But so, yeah, war is the, the most famous group that Metzger was associated with, but it didn't start out primarily as a skinhead um, organ. You could say it started out as a, a white civil rights sort of laundering organization that wasn't successful and that accompanied his increasing uh, you know, hostility towards the electoral process, at least as the primary modality of white power activism. Apart from wanting to avoid leaving a paper trail, what else did Metzger and war do that was do you think, innovative or interesting in terms of their propaganda and activity? I think they did a considerable uh, amount of interesting things. And, you know, I, I don't really like using the word brilliant to characterize any of Metzger's moves, but I also think that it's unavoidable if you really want to tackle what he was doing and how he was doing it. You know, the pejorative sense never really is attached to that kind of, you know, um, qualification. But he was a diabolical genius in many ways, not just you know, the avoidance of a paper trail. I think that it's fair to characterize Metzger as kind of an accelerationist by any other name. Many, many of the slogans and approaches to the strategic takedown of the state were things that Metzger was one of the pioneers of, ideologically speaking. He was absolutely a pioneer um, of the infiltration strategy in the contemporary white supremacist movement. And this is about a period of 50 years that he had this running. I mean, I can date the first sort of stirrings of it back to 1975. But in any, in any case, infiltration and building local constituencies through not just the security apparatus, you know, law enforcement, um, the military, things like that, but also local politics like uh, school boards, you know, history teachers, lawyers, things like that. Infiltration in these areas is something that Metzger really excelled at. He's also, I think, overlooked in terms of the strategic genius that he brought to white supremacist and fascist organizing in the sense of um, the communicative potential of an independent media apparatus while also using establishment media. What I mean by that is he leveraged the shock value of a white being a white supremacist that didn't conform to the stereotype of the Klan, for example, when he would go on shows like Oprah or Geraldo or John McLaughlin, whatever the case may be, and he would appear alongside of these these skinheads, right? These like roughneck, sort of violent thug characters, and he would appear in a suit and tie with his son John and Basically, he really was a master at playing off of, you know, these other characters in a way that I think prefigures Richard Spencer somewhat. You know, he was a presentable white supremacist talking about white civil rights, white nationalism, right? Not dropping the N-word out in public, things like this, but also with the, the threat of force backing him up in a lot of ways through these, um, you know, skinhead kids that he got on board. So that's one way. I also think it's really interesting when we talk about what Metzger's legacy was or I mean, is rather. And basically the innovations that he brought to contemporary white supremacy, 
because Billy Roper of Shieldwall Network actually did a, a eulogy podcast for him. And it was extremely long and extremely on point in quite disturbing ways because Roper acknowledges all of these different things that, I mean, as someone that, that works on Metzger pretty much 24-7, right, I've noticed, and it drives me insane that no one talks about them in terms of, you know, the anti-fascist circles or the academic spaces. But Billy Roper and the, you know, fellow Bash are all very, very well aware of these things like balkanization. So this approach to white supremacist organizing patterns that, that aim to leverage demographics, right, to start an ethnostate that way and moving on after a certain point when they realized that the Northwest Territorial Imperative was no longer a viable strategy based on demographic patterns. That's something that Roper credits Metzger with, and that's also very fair. Infiltration is another one. Also, I want to say on the, the media front, it's not just Metzger main, uh, mainstreaming, I guess you could say, his media appearances and using sort of his own persona in different ways that played off the skinheads pretty well. It's also the fact that one of the, the very lesser known facts about Tom Metzger is that his proficiency with media, obviously you guys have heard of um, the show that he had on public access, Race and Reason. But what very few people know about him is the fact that Metzger was uh, kind of a a precocious kid and actually invented the ham radio technologies was really involved in broadcasting from the age of like 11 or 12, I think. And he ended up getting asked to help uh, monitor the radio airwaves during the wars at the time by the, the government. He was one of the volunteers as a child, the youngest one, I think, in the country. And he had this acute ability to exploit communications technology in political conflicts from an extremely young age. And uh, when he went into the army, actually, later on and was deployed to Germany, that's something that he worked on as well, signals intelligence and monitoring communications, media technology, things like that, alongside the, the much better known aspects of his media persona, which would be, you know, either a clown on Louis Thoreau recently, I guess you could say, fairly recently, or being this political operative in a suit and tie that he also liked to portray, particularly in the early aspects of um, in his career with um, media engagements and things like that. So he had, I think, a really brilliant approach to multi-pronged media engagement that also included, say, um, the use of BBS sports and early early um, computer technology before long before ISIS or Al-Qaeda or any of these other groups were uh, leveraging the internet to recruit and build transnational networks. Mesker was on as early as, I think, I want to say 1983, although most people think it's about 1984. So along with Lewis Beam and George Dietz, uh, Metzger was one of the first to actually use computer technologies to plan attack, uh, plan attack, gain members, build these contact networks and, and things like that long before he even branched out to things like um, a call hotline that he ran alongside his, his own printing press or you know publishing house, if you want to call it that. So that's about as short an answer as I can give you because the list is extremely long. But I think those are sort of the, the highlights of what's most important to, to know about Tom Metzger. You are listening to Yeah Na Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Amanda Rogers about Tom Metzger. Uh, you mentioned infiltration. He had a project called Operation Appleseed. That is absolutely correct. Can you tell us what that was and uh, how successful was it? Well, okay. Yeah. The, here's one of the, the tricky things about Operation Apathy. You will rarely, I don't know why, you'll rarely encounter this in academic studies, but if you read his own propaganda, if you talk to people that have done ethnographic accounts 
of you know the white supremacist movement, they're very familiar with what it is and was. Um, if you talk to former white supremacists, they'll tell you about it too. But for some reason, and I personally, I think this is linked to a failure by observers to really take seriously some of the leadership figures in fascist circles. And I, you know, I'll come back to that at a later point, but I just wanted to throw that out now because Operation Appleseed was basically Metro's program of planting the seeds, he called it, of future white supremacist actors in um, the upper echelons of the military, of, you know, the armed all the armed forces, basically not just the army, but the you know, Navy, the Marines, as well as law enforcement locally and at higher levels. The State Department was another objective and aim. DOJ recently has included a high ranking uh, counterterrorism official that was likely part of Operation Appleseed. But anyway, so what Mester would do is he would ask the young skinheads to send him recruits that had that were clean, basically that had no criminal records. And he would meet with them individually without you know, said paper trail. Uh, and he also published quite a bit on this, that if you had a clean background, that you shouldn't shave your head, you should you know get rid of your work boots and your braces and all of the exterior signs of, you know, classic skinhead sort of youth culture. And you should get involved in these these organizations that had public credibility. And essentially to master it, you should keep your mask up until the time where you could launch an attack. Or you should operate within the system in a, a polite, middle-class, civil discourse, avoiding dropping the N-word politic ways, but also undermine, you know, minority rights and things like that from within. So this is a long-running program. I would argue it absolutely still exists. But the problem with being asked to quantify, you know, how successful was it, is when you're dealing with something like infiltration, there are kind of two different risks, um, I think. There's a risk of completely... Uh, underestimating how many people are involved, but there's also a risk of going like full Russia gate with it, if you know what I mean, and becoming extremely hysterical about the fact like they're everywhere and doing a reverse, I guess, of what like Mich- Michelle Bachman, I think, in Minnesota was saying, you know, a decade ago about like the Muslim Brotherhood has infiltrated the U.S. government and becoming basically a, an inverse of the John Birch Society. So uh, that said, I want to be really clear about a couple points of how I'm framing infiltration. You don't want to overestimate, you don't want to underestimate. So how do you gauge accurately the success or failure rate, right? Like your your question asks. There's another element here that I think is really important before I even dive into that, which is such a great question. And that's, there's such pushback from both the right and the left ends of the political spectrum on the question of infiltration as, as a thing itself. A lot of people on the right don't want to believe that it exists at all. Um, you know, the whole po- we're post-racial, we've been, we've like long gotten over the Klan and the police and all that horseshit. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have people saying, well, you know, modern policing evolved from slave patrols. So really infiltration can't by definition be a thing because the origins of American law enforcement in particular, you know, are, are from slavery. And granted, yes, the origins of American policing are, are in the slave patrols. However, that said, it's a huge mistake to dismiss infiltration as an operational program simply because of the fact that, you know, this is the historical evolution of law enforcement. The civil rights era necessitated a change in strategy for white supremacists in a whole lot of different ways. But covert operations became a lot more important, right? Because there was a political risk involved, there was professional risk, personal risk involved in airing the views that, you know, a decade before the civil rights struggle would have gotten you likely absolutely no blowback whatsoever. You had to be more careful. So I always want to start with kind of those premises because it's a, it's a tricky subject. 
Um, the other thing about uh, gauging the strategic or the success or failure rather of infiltration is that we only know about the failures, right? By definition, a covert operation is not going to reveal itself to you in its successes. Not until the time of like the day of the rope and the race war, if we are going by a lot of the white supremacist theories. Um, so you're going to find out about the existence of these groups or these individuals within only in terms of like a, a third party, only in terms of the failures. So when we learned about Shadow Moses, the group that was operating on the West Coast and on the East Coast um, in the police and as well as the Marines that were, were recruiting from within the police and manufacturing illegal weapons and selling them also involved in pharmaceutical illicit trafficking and some other things that I'm forgetting in addition to arresting black men on trumped up charges that were felonies to disenfranchise voting rights. Um, this is what the Georgia chapter in particular was doing. We know about those guys because of the fact that they got caught, right? We know about Chris Hassan, who went through several different branches of the armed forces in a 30-year career, I want to say, before he got busted. So it's really, really tricky to talk about how successful or not successful has Operation Appleseed been, because if anyone's being honest with you, they'll tell you, you can't really know. You have to go off the, the I would say the indicators that we have are that it's vastly underestimated because no one really talks about the existence of this as a program at all. One of the main issues with um, getting people to take it seriously is media coverage rarely connects these events that we find out about to broader issues. I mean, that is until January 6th when it kind of became an issue and then more or less people stopped talking about it. But, you know, generally there's a piecemeal approach that's look at this bad apple over and over and over again, right? Without asking the question, how did this bad apple happen to be, you know, the chief of police in an Oklahoma town that was outed for being a skinhead in a skinhead band running one of the biggest neo-Nazi websites and, oh shit, they just transferred him to another town over and this happened again in like two states down, right? Five years ago or something. So there's not really an, an approach that interrogates, I think, continuities. But that's a, a bigger issue with how people understand the viability of something called the movement in the first place. I also think it's exacerbated by, you know, the the overstated, apolitical, allegedly nature of the police and the armed forces, but that's a different question. So I think that Operation Appleseed has been far more successful than it is given credit for in the first place, because not very many people know about it in the second place, because this is just such a contentious issue um, that, that is, you know, infiltration itself. I'd also say that... One of my own indicators um, in doing the work that I do is that, you know, Metzger was a blowhard in a lot of ways, and he definitely had an outsized personality, and he, he was bombastic as hell. However, that said, someone like Tom Metzger, who used the phrase, and was notorious for using the phrase, by the way, use what works, is not going to be running the same propaganda campaign for 50 years unless it's reaping results. I mean, I know that it has results because like I'm sitting in the room with one of Master's like former acolytes right now who confirms the existence of this program to me that was in the Navy recruiting when he was in the Navy uh, for Metzger and was one of the people that Metzger said, send me the clean guys, right, um, for this kind of program. So I think it's been underestimated for a variety of reasons. But anyway, so the earliest documentation that I really was able to find of Metzger embracing infiltration as a strategy was in 1975. This is when he convinces David Duke, although David Duke will say in some accounts that he convinced Metzger, but they have this like hilarious, like bromance fight thing forever. In any case, 
there was a photo op at the southern border in Southern California here, or I think it was San Ysidro, if I'm not mistaken. But in any case, Metzger and Duke landed in a helicopter on the INS building roof. They got a personal tour throughout the facilities. They were later sued by, I, I want to say it was the Chicano Rights Association for a lot of very, just to say, strange incidents of violence at the southern border later on, which is where I came across the update. But in any case, Metzger admitted in some of his accounts to having people inside INS and the Border Patrol. And this is something, so he's on record in court documents talking about that, but refusing to quantify how many it is. And there's a lot of documentation of them having this tour, right? It's, it's very clear cut that it happened. They had permission for it. There were moments of controversy where Metzger basically got people in trouble because he would quote various INS Border Patrol people as saying that they welcomed Klan operations and Klan volunteers. And then, of course, like INS would deny it. But anyway, there's a long track record of this specific event. And Metzger talked about it at length throughout his career. So this starts in 1975, right? And then when you look at like 2005, you see Metzger blasting job ads for Border Patrol and INS like on his email listserv and saying, you know, a few good patriots are wanted at um, immigration naturalization. And we got this from, you know, one of our guys basically. So apply, apply, apply. Someone like Metzger, who was very, very pragmatic, would not be seeding things like that, you know, did not mean to use seeding as a pun there, that was awful. But in any case, he would not have been, you know, laying the groundwork for something like that and hammering it home for decades uh, because he got real impatient with shit that didn't work. So that's kind of a, I think, a, a brief. Oh, one thing that I do want to say, too, is I don't, it wasn't called Operation Appleseed at the time it was, it was started. From the work that I've done, what appears to have happened is it became more programmatic as the decades wore on from 1975, when really the first sort of um, beginnings of this start. But after Metzger and War were sued by Southern Poverty Law in the, the case of um, Burhanu versus Metzger over the, the Ethiopian students' murder by skinheads in Portland, basically Metzger loses the civil case after representing himself as his own attorney. And uses the whole trial to grandstand, you know, as was his style. And then at the end of the case, when he found uh, liable for over a million, I think, I can't remember the exact judgment with Moore and John also. But in any case, so he's on the courthouse steps and a reporter's asking him, what are you going to do now? And how do you feel? And he says, well, I feel great. This is a victory. And they're like, how can you say that? You just were, you know, found liable for millions. And Metzger says, well, the, you know, it's proof that the movement is like vibrant, whatever. And he also, he says he's going to go take his wife out to dinner and celebrate the, the glory of the movement or whatever. And then he starts laughing and he says, don't you get it? You know, um, it, it's too late. We planted the seeds. We're in too deep. You know, we're in your military apparatus. We're in your classrooms. We're in your school boards. We're on your police forces. Don't you get it? Where do, where do you think all the skinheads? And really that moment in 1991, his response to that, trial and the you know the civil judgment against him, I think freed him. I mean, he even said at the time that now he had absolutely no ties reigning in what he was going to do, right? And because he'd been found vicariously liable. And so at that point, I think it became more programmatic. And knowing the kind of view of himself that, that Tom Metzger had, I would not be surprised if, if Operation Appleseed was something he coined after that 1991 response to the reporter because, you know, it's it's really media savvy. After he had said that, we planted the seeds, 
and they're already there. So yeah, I think those are important dates kind of and milestones on the road. I also want to say, getting back briefly to the point about how successful was the strategy. I mean, the fact that Adam Walton is linked to Tom Mester and nobody talks about it, particularly given the rate of service men that were recruited into Adam Walton is real interesting. And I think that that's something that can't be overlooked when we talk about success or failures here. Because, you know, when Brandon Russell was looking to get in touch with James Mason before Adam Walton was even founded, the first person he contacted was Tom Metzger. Tom Metzger was the only person that kept James Mason uh, really even viable and um, in front of, you know, contemporary white supremacist readers for several decades. Uh, prior to Adam Walton's existence. And then also, you know, John um, Cameron Denton, a.k.a. Rape, um, a charming young man, uh, has claimed before in writing uh, that, you know, he had Metzger sign his copy of Siege, I think in like 20, 2010 or something. I can't remember the exact dates, but basically it would have put Denton at such a young age, like something like 12. You know, it could be braggadocio, who knows. But the fact of the matter is it seems pretty significant to me that the leadership in Adam Wappen, right, both of the leaders basically uh, before the previous uh, debacles, both of the leaders of Adam Wappen had discussed on the record having ties to Tom Esker very early on in their lives. And so, and familiarity with James Mason too. So you have to assume that, that people are behind the scenes getting this information in these channels of uh, contact out that were maintained. I mean, there is definitely a cross-generational development of these connections of people that are not in the same groups, if that makes sense. You made reference earlier to Brian P. Horton, uh, who went from yes. being in the neo-Nazi skinhead band yes. Arresting Officers. Arresting Officers. How, how much of a fuck you is that, right? Uh, he then went on to become a uh, top counter-terrorism official yep. within the DOJ. Yep. Department of Justice, that is correct. Yes. I suppose, isn't this the ideal of uh, some in the CVE industry, that he can go from extolling the virtues of lone wolf terrorism to being a top counterterrorism official with hardly any muscle fuss in between? Well, well, didn't you just hit on one of the big fucking problems with the CVE industry, did you not? As if the case of, you know, Matt Heimbach shouldn't be sort of like an, uh, also a red flag right now. But yeah, you, you just hit on one of the big problems with CVE as an industry. I don't think you want me to expound at length on how I feel about that, because I will, I will definitely rant the entire rest of the interview on that question. But yeah, it's, it's an issue. But I think, I do think that formers can be very, very useful in um, fighting fascism in many respects. But I think that what the CV industry misses and missed with Heimbach and missed definitely with Houghton. And I just, I'm really restraining myself right here from what I want to say about that whole affair. But one of the ways that, that I think that formers, um, interacting with formers should be conceived of, right, for anyone that's anti-fascist themselves, is, you know, you need to look at actions first. And these, you know, latter day, come to cracker Jesus, right, my racism was wrong now that you found out that I was in a skinhead band several years ago. And oh, yeah, I was on a couple of documentaries talking about this stuff. Or was that the other uh, police chief? I can't, there's so many of them. So I guess, yeah, they've been pretty successful. But in any case, you know, there's a pattern with um, the Operation Appleseed types, right? Where the uh, regret that is expressed and the change of heart that happened happens when they get busted for something and there's going to be some consequences. And then just frankly, the CBE folks seem to be, and I don't want to generalize because I, I'm sure there's some very fine CV industry types 
I will hear this. You know, one of the problems is that it's white people are given the benefit of the doubt in ways that um, other types of quote unquote extremists will never be given the benefit of the doubt. You're not going to have someone repent for being an ISIS cell member and leader after he gets outed being in DOJ counterterrorism roles. All right. And then have him say, oh, yeah, I left ISIS like like 10 years ago and I just didn't talk about it. It's not going to happen ever, you know, and people like Tom Metzger were savvy enough to know that well in advance. But I think that you can vet that kind of thing by by looking at someone's actions and building up, um, I guess, I guess, social credit, credibility over time, um, you know, versus the, yeah, the latter day come to white Jesus meeting. Were there connections between Brian Horton and Metzger? Well, you know, see, this is really interesting in terms of what do you mean by connections? Some sort of link between him and Metzger that had gone unreported. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the fact that he was in a band that Metzger promoted relentlessly at his ridiculous Aryan Fest numerous times over the years, I, I think qualifies as a pretty substantial, tangible link. Now, as far as like love letters betwixt the two, I don't have any evidence of that, right? But um, I, it's pretty safe to say because it's not like the neo-Nazi, I'm, I'm sorry, neo-Nazi skinhead band members out there. I really hate to do this to you, but like... Your music is not that popular, thank God, because it's trash, right? Um, I mean, I'm talking ideological content aside. Your music is just trash. There's not a market for it. So, like, the, the circle of people that Metzger could invite to these pathetic little Aryan festivals, it's just not that big. And so, yeah, I, I view repeated appearances by the arresting officers as an indicator, absolutely, because one of the things that Metzger was really good about doing with these music festivals was connecting major metropolitan area skinhead scenes through these networks that were traveling for shows. Uh, PJ Lydon, who passed away last year, talked about that quite a bit in his memoir. I think Frank Mink has talked about that too, but I'm not sure off the top of my head. But yeah, anyway, that's um, one of the links. I mean, and another link I think that's worth mentioning is Wade Michael Page, the the guy that shot up the, the sick Gurdwara in Wisconsin was a member of a skinhead band with military background who had links to Metzger and, you know, was out, I think, in, I want to say Orange County, but I could be mistaken where exactly in Southern California he was. But Metzger had him and his band um, come play Arian Fest. And he also liked Wade Michael Page's music so much that he had one of his songs as like the banner on um, the war website for quite a while. So to talk about someone like, a Houghton and someone like Wade Michael Page as, as like classical lone wolf, right? Or to to assess them outside of these kinds of connections, I think is incredibly mistaken. I think that's part of the reason that people don't have a good understanding of the way that the contemporary transnational white supremacist movement actually works. People are looking at, they're looking pretty much exclusively at paper trails. They're looking at leaders and visible roles. They're not looking at network connections, but if you take a step back and you start looking at this as a web instead of a one-to-one, you start seeing these overlapping circles, right? Where, I mean, you know, again, not to insult your shitty neo-Nazi crappy, you know, atonal, awful garbage music, but like there's not that many people involved. So when they're interacting over and over and over again at a festival organized by someone who would chant over and over at the openings of these festivals, infiltrate like a submarine infiltrate law enforcement, infiltrate the military over and over again, you know, I, it seems like pretty credible, suggestive evidence to me. As you've noted, the, the Operation Appleseed or the attempt to seed state institutions with uh, neo-Nazi actors has had 
some success, how much we don't quite know, but presumably we'll discover in time. But it seems to me the other great success of Metzger was to associate what had previously been understood as a, you know, basically a youth subculture, uh, which is skinhead, with uh, neo-Nazi politics. And that, to such uh... an extent, that skinhead has almost come to be considered synonymous with Nazi politics. I, I, I would agree and disagree because, you know, like if, you've, if you've read, um, what is it, A Thousand Little Hitlers, I think is the title. I can't remember Eleanor Langer's book title verbatim. Apologies. One of the, the points that she makes in her book is that um, when skinhead culture essentially made it to the States and started to be adapted by, you know, racist punk rockers and anti-racist punk rockers in terms of the aesthetic overlap and things like that, it's tricky because you don't want to over-determine the attribution of causality to someone like Metzger, right? There were kids getting into this definitely on their own. Metzger was not the only person in terms of like a, a leadership position in the fascist movement that embraced the skinheads. Pierce did too at different times um, of the National Alliance, you know, especially with the resistance records and things like that. Metzger, I think, was the most visible association with them in that sense. But I think like many things that that Tom Metzger exploited and made use of in his lifetime, he saw an opening and took it and really, really, really exacerbated, you know, the, the wedge that he could drive rather than being a mastermind per se. One of the things that I, I really have an issue with is when people talk about the skinheads being Metzger's shock troops, because especially from, I want to say like the mid eighties on, but definitely after 91 and the loss of that civil suit, Metzger, I think where he was really successful is, you know, he didn't try to control the skinheads. Uh, he didn't try to bring them in as like a hybrid militia fighting force, you know, underground for like a above board political organization. It was more accelerationist in terms of the way that he set it up. I think he harnessed and channeled energies and you know, accelerated. I got him. Don't want to say radicalization because that word is so stupid. Um, but accelerated people's embrace of um, violence, you know, in particular ways that uh, I just think we have to be really careful because it can let people off the hook for what they were absolutely active agents in. Um, and, you know, I'd like to deny him credit whenever possible, but I have to be honest, you know. I guess, I guess the other question I have in relation to Metzger and, and media in particular is he was a pioneer in many respects with cable and hotlines and, and so on. What, how did he adapt to the internet? Because, you know, obviously there's many other figures that have emerged that have, for whom the internet is a, the key instrument for politicizing or radicalizing or nazifying uh, their audience. Well, like I mentioned before, I mean, he was one of the first people on it along with Lewis Beam um, around the same time in the early 80s, 83, 84, somewhere in there. George Dietz and Tom Metzger and Lewis Beam all had BBS sites and they started building their transnational connections from there. So yeah, he was an active, active user of the internet, you know, decades before they even existed. In terms of, I'm not entirely sure what you're asking. Are you, are you asking about like competitive sort of marketing of his organization versus other organizations over the internet or to just need uh, technological capacities or? I guess I'm kind of wondering, may, I guess, uh, is there a generational shift in the sense that he cut his teeth on these technologies early, uh, was, a, was an early adopter, employed them, then, well, his star um, dimmed a little uh, with the internet and it seems that during this period, in the last few 
decades, I suppose, other actors have emerged which have been able to perhaps arguably use or utilise the internet in much more effective ways than Metzger did um, or, or, or not. You know, how, well, how effective did... Is, yeah. The, this is where I think, again, like the, the persona of Tom Metzger is really fascinating and uh, somewhat contradictory and difficult to understand because of the fact that, I mean, if you look at the timeline, right, Metzger was really visible until 91. So from 83 to about 91, like when he's using communications technology, like, you know, the World Wide Web before it really kind of exists, he's making, he's exploiting the hell out of these technologies. But we have to look at the historical markers in his life and what directions he took other strategies to understand why his star dimmed. And I don't necessarily think it's because he became less relevant. Like when I, I talked about the Adam Watson guys before, you know, he was definitely still active behind the scenes and he was hitting up every racist podcast, every racist TV show. Like he was pretty ecumenical in his approach to his own media appearances within these spaces. But as far as running his own stuff, he kind of took a back seat. And when I look at that in tandem with things like Operation Appleseed and what I have managed to get my hands on of his own communications, you know, I think that that was more deliberate. And having the flashy website was not necessarily Tom Metzger's point, although he definitely kept that up for name recognition, for funneling people to his ideas. But that definitely was not the main thrust of what he was up to and, and um, into after the loss of that 1991 civil suit. I think that that really provides a key to a lot of things about how Metzger ran his operations, one of which is a more subdued presence in terms of trying to cultivate a public persona with like a, a flock of followers, the way that you might think about when Metzger first ran for office uh, right after he was the um, media person, spokesperson for the P Camp Pendleton, um, you know, military base KKK group. So yeah, I think that's significant to mention as well. I'd also probably throw in while we're talking about media and before it slips my mind, um, another aspect of the media framework that he exploited and isn't really recognized for, but I think should be because we can learn a lot from how he operated, was when he had his public access show, Race and Reason. I mean, this is just one of many, many media formats that he was active and actively manipulating. But he was one of the first to really mobilize the free speech First Amendment um, defense. And what he would do is, you, I mean, I guess the way to conceptualize it is to talk about it as a false flag. He would have his followers submit tapes of race and reason to the local channels. And then he would have followers call and complain. And then it would turn into a publicity storm, you know, and a debate about the limits of free speech and who has access and rebranding white supremacist uh, issues as white civil rights. So, and doing that specifically through discussion of the First Amendment and freedom of speech caused by his own controversial material. I feel like I should apologize in advance for this segue. It's not one of the all-time greats, but um, speaking of the internet... <laughs> Uh, one of the other projects you've been working on has been a data leak of the Fascist Forge Forum. Could you tell us what was Fascist Forge? What role did it play in the wider online ecosystem? And could you speak to some of the challenges of releasing that information? Yeah, sure. I'm very, very glad you asked this question because the Fascist Forge leak has actually been uh, a huge headache and nightmare, but absolutely worth um, dealing with it. So basically, uh, Adam Waffen and the base and several other organizations like this uh, came into existence basically via uh, Iron March, which was the predecessor to Fascist Forge, um, that site got shut down and Fascist Forge was, um, you know, erected in its place. But basically, um, these were members, they, they were websites with members only access at certain levels. 
where people exchanged application essays on why they wanted to join um, particular neo-Nazi accelerationist groups and were instructed and mentored by other fascists elsewhere across the world. Um, Fascist Forge was pretty notorious because you had um, people from, you know, in Nordic resistance, networking with Adam Wathen, networking with the base, networking with, you know, um, Golden Dawn guys, just all over the world, basically. So these were transnational uh, mobilization sort of portals, I guess you could say. And Fascist Forge was the successor site to Iron March. So basically, long story short, there was this period of time where a bunch of accelerationists were trying to like kill a bunch of people. I'm going to be just really articulate about it. Uh, and they screwed up because they're fail sons and that's what they do. And a defector from one of these organizations um, actually reached out to me and apologized for me being on one of these kill lists that they fucked up, which was awesome. I mean, it's nice to get an apology from someone that tried to kill you, I guess. And uh, I was actually really touched, which is a long story, because this person had left the organization. And as part of uh, their process of, you know, like, whatever you want to call it, atonement, um, their redemption arc, said, please uh, help me get this material out there, you know, um, and save some lives. So we started trying to look for uh, someone to host this data that uh, the leaker was comfortable with. And that would be responsible uh, and not essentially open it all up to public access for, you know, any idiot to dox the wrong person and ruin lives in this escalating, you know, clusterfuck of what fascist movements can um, cause. And initially, we we had a couple hosts who were at a major university and some not name at the moment, even though I'm pretty irritated with them. And they went back and forth with us. What we initially wanted to do was have a layered access sort of archive in which people could, uh, you know, researchers and, and those who are not trying to access a bunch of propaganda videos could look through different files, right, but wouldn't have access to, to private data the way that, I'm sorry, it basically, you know, successively um, private data would be blocked from the general public's access for safety reasons. But so uh, this one university that we worked with for almost a year basically just kind of ghosted because it got complicated with their legal department, you know, which is just absolutely heartbreaking for a variety of reasons, including things that the leaker was really trying hard to prevent the mobilization that elapsed during that year. But that's another story entirely. So now we have um, contacted and, and spoken with another university um, with whom both myself and, and the leaker are a lot closer that I can't name yet and are now in the process of um, transferring the data to them. And um, they have far fewer legal uh, issues with what we're trying to do, I think, because they have handled similar material in the past and they're a lot more familiar um, yeah, with, with things like that. So that's one of the tricks in where the leak is at at the moment. One of the other tricky things is what's the line between open access for the public, which I think transparency is great, don't get me wrong, but I also know that there's a tendency to, you know, dox the wrong people if you don't know what you're doing. I sure as hell don't, that's why I don't dox people, you know, because I don't want to get it wrong and fuck up someone's life. But there's also the issue for me of the the leaker wants, that, wants people to not be able to be doxed incorrectly and have their lives ruined. So it's not my data set, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to navigate responsibly within what this person wants done with it. And, you know, part of the vindictive aspect to me is, I mean, as any human I think has, is 
yeah, I, I kind of enjoy seeing a lot of these dudes just like outed and blasted in public. But at the same time, that's not my decision to make. And I have to, I have to, I think, respect the ethical imperatives of the person that, that risked a whole lot of things to release this, you know? So there's a lot of layers to the fascist forge um, leak. But yeah, I can't wait to get it out there. Amanda, earlier you referred to uh, formers who may or may not be former. Um, yeah. And in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm, it may be the case that there are people listening who are involved in these movements, these groups yeah. who are having second thoughts, who are, you know, disquieted by their participation for whatever reason. What advice or what do you think people in that situation should do? Um, well, apart, you know, from, apart from do things like release databases and, and so on. Well, I, I think that's a really, really hard question for, for me to tackle because the fact of the matter is, you know, I'm, I'm not even fully white, so I could never be a white supremacist, really. You know, I've never been in the position of being in one of these groups and then being faced with doubts and disquiet about my participation. So I don't know what that I, I can't really address, like, here is what you should do to leave, you know, in, in your position, I would do X, Y, or Z. So that I want to be clear, I can't speak to what I can say from farmers that I know and trust. And yeah, there, there are some, including one of the people that was involved in, you know, um, trying to kill me. Uh, there are farmers that I really trust with my life now. And I, I am shocked, you know, every time I say it, but it's true. And I think that even though, you know, ideologically, I, I think all of these beliefs are just fucking repulsive, you know, and make no sense to me, what have you. If someone is having doubts about them, I can understand that. I can't understand like glomming onto them in the first place, but I'm also coming from a different position. So what I would say is reach out to a former that you see on social media, you know, like reach out to someone like Shannon Martinez is the first person that comes to mind. Always, always, always. I wouldn't and just, I'm not particularly thrilled with CBE organizations as a whole. I think that a more community oriented response to people that are disengaging is a lot more productive for farmers themselves and also for the community. Like I would reach out to someone like Shannon Martinez that's um, not owned by the CDE industry in any stretch of the imagination that will help you leave. I mean, if anyone wants to reach out to me, I, I will connect them with formers that will help them leave. No questions asked. I mean, my um, Proton mail is uh, your lady of chaos theory um, at Proton. And, you know, I've, I've done this before on Twitter. Like if someone is having doubts or they want to speak about getting out of the movement or they're worried about something that they've done, you know, I, I will put them in touch, not with law enforcement, that's outside the scope of what I'm interested in, what I do, but I'll put you in touch with, um, you know, credible former that actually gives a shit about your life and knows where you're coming from much better than I do. Because I'm certainly not the kind of person that I think um, someone that's halfway in fascism would listen to right now. Um, but I, I think any person that, that considers themselves an anti-fascist, um, you know, should be a vector in channeling requests like that to people that know what the hell they're dealing with and, and are qualified to vet really where someone claiming to want to leave is at. I can give my perspective from the formers that I've known, right? But never having been inside myself or even anywhere near sympathy for that kind of ideological framework, I wouldn't know where to start. But I would happily help them find that that support because it's out there. Well, that's all we have time for on the radio, but we'll have a few more questions with Amanda on the podcast version of the show, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you're at Ms. Entropy, and you're also on patreon.com at the same address, MS Entropy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It was great to be here. Folks, uh, that is all we've got time for. We'll be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. See you then. 
I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Hey you mob, this virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Vaxed and Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.